Morning. Are y'all awake? All right. We'll try again. Good morning. Right. It's excited to be here, I can tell. All right. We will, um, we are going to, for those of you that are watching virtually, at the end of the service today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together so you can get your crackers and orange juice or potato chips, whatever your uh, Oreo cookies. That's probably what we should use, Oreo cookies, that would I like Oreos, so we're going to do that at the end of our time together today. If, you, if you're here in the house and, and you don't have the elements, they're back there on a table in the back, that, uh, incredibly expensive stuff that we have that uh, tastes like you're chewing on a piece of paper and trying to wash it down with dirt water, so we want to make it easy for you. All right, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. Your Bibles, your devices, get to John chapter 6. I do want to thank everybody again that participated yesterday with Help Group. We had uh, 260, 270 families that we were able to serve again. And just, uh, it looked like the weather was going to be horrific, like it was going to be raining all day. And it turned out it was just perfect, overcast and uh, no humidity. It was even enjoyable. So it was nice to go around and talk to people in their cars and uh, be able to, we had a lot of help. And we figured out how to get a lot of teenagers there to help. Is you have all the high school guys spend the night there playing video games with their student pastor who has a problem with calendaring because you don't want to stay up all night when you got to do something the next morning. But that's a different issue. So you have all the high school guys hang out Friday night and play video games all night and then have them show up, there, show up as zombies on Saturday morning to do help group day, which they did. They were fantastic. And then because the high school guys spent all night there and they were there Saturday morning, guess who showed up in large abundance Saturday morning to help? High school girls. So we figured out that that's how you do it. So if it's adults, you have to feed them. With kids, it's just uh, just come hang out and get to see me. That's what it was when I was in high school. I figured if I'm there, there'll be women there just because I'm there. But it didn't always work that way. I couldn't understand all right. But again, thank you so much for, for every, we had such an uh, abundance. Uh, it was really cool to be able to just sit back and watch uh, both, uh, every generation just be there serving people, just simply loving folks and giving them food in the name of Jesus. And you guys make that happen by your giving. So we're, we are grateful and, uh, for everything. All right. Do me a favor. Turn down my, uh, it's number one on the on the light board down just a little bit so I can see people's faces. I know they don't may not want to see mine. A little bit more. There we go. That's good. I think we're. I actually like having the light, but uh, also like to see your smiling faces. So, uh, John chapter six. If you will turn there as we continue to look at the I am statements of Jesus Christ. The one we're going to begin that we're going to look at today and next week is I am the bread of life. I am the bread, bread of life. And this series is the question that everybody has to answer sooner or later in their lives is, who is Jesus? When he said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? It is the question that every human being has to answer one way or the other. You can reject Jesus and say he was just a great moral teacher. I don't even believe he, he existed. Some, some people say he's not even a historical figure, but... Uh, we'll leave that one alone, and we don't have time to deal with that inane idea. So, 
You could say he was just another great prophet, just like um, uh, other great prophets, or other great religious leaders with Confucius, Buddha, pardon me, Muhammad, uh, Moses, whoever you want to pick, that Jesus was just another great prophet teacher. Or you can reject him altogether and say, just, just a good man. But you have to deal with him, and here's the reason why. He says that I am. I am God. I am the eternal self-existent one. I am Yahweh, Elohim, Elohim, whatever term you want to use. I'm God. I am Jehovah. And the reason that I want to make sure we, we see the context as he's making these statements as we go through John and looking at these great I am statements of Christ, we've looked at the prologue to set that up and we've looked at the, the summary of it in John eight fifty eight, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. What we're going to do starting today is actually look at the statements. This is the first of the, ones, first of the great I am statements that, that John records for us and where he says, I am the bread of life. And the context of these statements, both in history and in the Gospel of John and in the ministry of Jesus Christ, is that he's wanting, remember, remember this, historical context, the audience that he's speaking to when he says, I am, before Abraham was. I, why did he mention Abraham? Because they were Jewish and Abraham was their father and it was a big deal to them. So he says, before Abraham even existed on the planet Earth, I did. Well, the only way for that to be possible, they even say, oh, wait a minute, you're not yet 50 years old and you knew Abraham. That's not possible. You're making yourself out to be God. And he went, I know I wasn't there, but Jesus went, bingo. That's what I'm telling you. I'm God. And that's the message of the Gospel of John, the deity of Jesus of Nazareth. And there are people, even theologians, that say Jesus never claimed to be God. They have one theological and educational problem if they say Jesus never claimed to be God. You know what it is? They can't read. He clearly claimed to be God. Even if you don't read the Bible, read Josephus, a Jewish historian. Jesus claimed to be the Christus, the Messiah. Clearly he did. That's why to this day, he's still the most controversial figure that's ever walked planet Earth. And he said it would be that way, even amongst in families. So the point of the I am statements, why did he make them? Remembering his audience to which he spoke these I am statements was exclusively, almost exclusively, there were certainly some Romans around but in Greeks, but by and large, Jewish. And he's saying to them, I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been looking for. So he makes the I am statements to say to them, I am the promised one. Your scriptures, he constantly refers to their scriptures, what we would call the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. I am the promised one. I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am God in the flesh. I am Emmanuel, God with man. I have come to reveal myself to you as the one you've been looking for forever. Generation to generation to generation, you, the Jewish people, have been waiting for the Messiah to come to redeem you. I'm here. And just that simple statement those two words, it's literally one word in Greek, but those two words when Jesus says, I am, that's what set the Pharisees off. We have to get rid of him because he was claiming to be deity and taking the place of 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, claiming to be Yahweh, and they had to get rid of him. So it's the, when he says, I am, it's the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency. The only self-existent thing in the universe is God. Jesus said, I am the self-existent one. I am the eternal one. I am the only one who's not a created being. I am the creator, not a created being. That's why Paul makes such a big deal in Romans chapter 1 that people's hard heart towards God ultimately leads them to worshiping the creation rather than what? The creator. And that's why anything short of worshiping Jesus as God is not worshiping God because he alone is God. That's his message. It's the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency. It's the ultimate statement of the imminence of God, the immediate presence of God. I always have been. I always will be. I am eternal, self-existent, immutable. I do not change. The same yesterday, today, and forever, the writer of Hebrews said, totally self-sufficient. My existence is not contingent on anyone or anything else. My plans as God, are not contingent on circumstances. What I will do, I will do. Now, that, did they understand all that? No, even his followers did not. Even they were confused. But the context of the one we're going to look at today, this great statement, I am the bread of life, this results after the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And probably, because the original says 5,000 men, it was probably more like fifteen or 20,000 people when you include women and children that he fed with one little boy's lunch. An amazing miracle. And out of that miracle, John then records the sermon of the Bread of Life sermon. So I want to quick, quickly read the miracle. So if you'll turn to, to John 6, if you haven't already, and go to verse 1. John 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. They had seen him healing people. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? This he said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Notice men. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. They gathered gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with with the fragments of five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, the feeding of the thousands, said, this is truly the, the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when, they, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. 
And when evening had come, the disciples went down. It came, his disciples went down to the sea. All right, you see the miracle. And they're thinking, this is the great prophet that the law talked about and Moses talked about. They, the result of the miracle, notice again, context. The result of the miracle is the crowd wanted to do what? They wanted to take Jesus literally and by force make him be Messiah, overthrow Rome, and set up the Jews as reigning. Turn over for just a minute to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 40. Many from the crowd, when they heard this, saying, said, truly this is the prophet. Same thing we just talked about. Others said, this is the Christ, or Messiah. Some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture, Old Testament, said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man! Exclamation point. And the Pharisees answered him, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, a Pharisee, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. So the crowd is divided. They don't understand. Many want to just take Jesus and make him king by force. They're confused about who Jesus is. And the reason they want him to do that is he has been meeting their physical needs. And they've seen it, miraculously seen him provide physically. And that's what they're looking for. Please note this context before we get into it. It's very important. We've talked about it before. We, you can see it with Nicodemus. But you, and we've talked about it in general. But it's going to come up over and over again. As Jesus deals with them in the, the aftermath of this miracle and sharing about it, it's, he is giving him a very simple dichotomy for them to digest, ruminate on, and learn. Spiritual versus physical. Spiritual versus physical. You look back in the history of religions, and what you will always see is that somehow physically they're trying to attain to something spiritually by making an idol, making a physical sacrifice to that idol, cutting themselves, offering their children, whatever physically I've got to sacrifice so I can get the spiritual on my side. You know what the difference between Christian C.S. Lewis put it so beautifully? Someone, they were at a, a convention, and I've shared this with you before, but it's very appropriate. And they were all these great theologians were talking about what makes Christianity unique. And he just comes walking into the room walking by while they're discussing it. And they said, what makes Christianity unique? And he just keeps walking. It says grace. It just keeps walking. The difference, what they didn't get, and what people, even today in churches, don't get, in many cases, is what grace is. Is that God gives you bread, in this case, far beyond physical. He gives you freely spiritual bread. 
He gives you freely eternal life. It's nothing you earn. It's nothing you deserve. It's nothing you are worthy of. They're none worthy. No, not one. Grace is God giving you a free gift. What are the, what's the crowd wanting? They're wanting more physical, physical, physical. And Jesus is saying, no, it's spiritual, it's spiritual, it's spiritual. We've used the example of Nicodemus ad nauseum. When Jesus said, you must be born again, what did he say? I got to go back inside my mom. Physical. And then you, you go through that whole encounter, water versus the word. It's not about baptism. It's about physical and spiritual. Physical, spiritual. What did Jesus say? We talked about this already. Over and over and over to his disciples so they would get it. And they still struggle until the resurrection. Post-resurrection and particularly after Pentecost. But he kept saying to them over and over, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm sent from above. My kingdom is a heavenly one. It is not about the earth. It's about heaven, eternal verities. So that's what you're going to see here. They're interested in physical. Jesus' purpose in the miracle was so he could get to the sermon. So he could get to the sermon. To prepare them to understand what the bread of life is really all about. To illustrate his deity and explain what he means by that. And to reveal their hearts that they were not looking for the right things. That they were looking only, he used the example of the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. They only pray so people will be amazed at how good they can pray. They give so people could see them give. They make themselves look all sad and, and broken down and fast so you could see it. And it's so telling what Jesus said about them in that Sermon on the Mount. He said, they give so people could see them. They pray so you can hear them. They fast so you can look at them and say, oh, wow. And they have their reward. It's not from God. It's from men. Because that's all they're looking for. He said, when you pray, you get alone with the Father. When you give, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. When you fast, do it in private. You get alone with your Father. You grow close to your Father. Don't just be outwardly religious. That's why even in the Old Testament, the Bible says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And by the way, he knows every heart. That's the beauty of him being omniscient and omnipresent, the great I am. So this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. Talked about this before. But the only Gospel that records the sermon is John. The explanation of the miracle so let's begin to look at it. All right, what you see first of all, number one there on your handout, is they're seeking Jesus. Apparently, and on the surface, it looks like they're really into Jesus. It's very telling because you see that a lot today. The Bible, it's amazing how relevant the Bible is. I really want Jesus as long as Jesus does what? What I want him to do. But don't start challenging me. What we're going to see at the end of this, this is, even though Jesus is an, it's an amazing sermon, and this is the first of the great I am statements. But at the end of the sermon, when they're challenged with how hard it's going to be, the Bible says, and it's right here and we'll get to it, many followed him no more. 
when he realized it's not going to be all about me. It's going to involve sacrifice, possibly even martyrdom. I ain't into that. And they moved on. And then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, will you go away too? In other words, boys, are you in or are you, are you out? And it's a challenge we, as all Christians, we have to understand. How serious are you about your faith? When the hard times come, are you just as faithful? We'll see that as we walk through it. All right, they're seeking Jesus. What you're going to notice, there are two motivations here. First of all is the apparent motivation, verse 22, 622. On the following day, this is after the miracle, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, yet Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is really cool. So the next day, we're going to go talk to Jesus. We're going to follow him. So in the morning, they get down there, and the boats are there, and Jesus is not there. and He's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Guess how he got there? He walked on top of the water. That's cool. Just another miracle. And they ask a logical, how'd you get here? There's no boat. I'm God. He didn't say it, but that's, that's the point. So, verse 20, he said to him, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, what's their apparent motivation? Verse 22, people who were standing on the other side of the sea thought there was no other boat there except the one that his disciples entered. Jesus entered, but his disciples are gone away alone. They want to see more about Jesus. For two years now, which is about the beginning of his third year of ministry, Passover, Passover fever is high. Jesus, for two years, he, he's the only thing anybody's talking about when he's going around, all the miracles that he's doing and all the incredible things. Even we just saw it earlier, just reading, that even the Romans were impressed with how he taught. Said, Nobody teaches like this guy. In the Jewish leader, Nicodemus says, wait a minute, this, guy, this guy's special. But the Pharisees didn't want to hear it because he was challenging their authority with the people. Miracles are abounding. His... Uh, the messianic fever is high. They want Jesus to be their Messiah. They want to set him up. They're excited about him. It's Passover. So the question, question to them is, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Look at verse 15. 15. When Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain himself to be alone. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, came over to sea toward Capernaum. When it was already dark, Jesus had not come to them. And the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. <laughs> and they were afraid. Guess what you would have been? You'd have been afraid. What does Jesus say to them? We just read it. Relax, boys. It's in Greek. Relax, boys. Don't be afraid. It's me. Again, I'm God. I can walk on top of the water. Matter of fact, I can tell the water what to do. I made the water. And sometimes I think in my flesh, and I know maybe you do as well. I know you never get in the flesh, you never sin. But you think about these guys, Peter, James, John, and the rest of them. They saw Jesus do some astounding things. 
He's walking on top of water. Only him and maybe Bear Bryant have ever done that. That's an Alabama joke for those of you who don't know. And yet, Satan is so good at what he does. And yet, when Jesus needed them the most in Gethsemane and at the fire when the Roman soldiers come to get him to take it to crucify him, what is their response? Peter's response. I don't even know who you're talking I don't know him. They just didn't have the faith. You know what I love about that? Because we think, man, if I'd have been there, I'd been all up in it because I saw him walk on water and I saw him feed 20,000 people with one little lunch and I saw him heal people and I saw him, I saw him teach incredible things. I saw him pray. I saw who he was. That, that sin nature and that satanic pressure is so strong. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus or you fail. Like Peter, he got to walk on water too as long as he did what? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And then as soon as he started worrying about the water, boom, he dropped like a stone. So Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. So the apparent motivation of the people, verse 25, Lord, we're seeking Jesus. Verse 24, where is he? God knows their hearts. So their real motivation, verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Here's the dichotomy we talked about. He's about to get into it with them. You said your real motivation to the crowd, we talked about this last week, but I'm going to reiterate it. Notice how verse 26 begins. Truly, truly, or most assuredly, I say to you. In the literal, here's what he's saying. I, with absolute authority, speak to you absolute truth. You'll see him say that over and over again. I, with absolute authority, speak to you absolute truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, here's the truth about you. I'm going to reveal your true motivations. You're not seeking me because you saw me do the miracles, even though you thought that was cool. You're doing it because I fed you. I met a physical need. You're ignoring the sign, the messianic sign that I showed you to prove that I was the Messiah that I fulfilled by that you want a king, a Messiah, that's just going to give you free stuff all the time. Sound a lot like our society today, doesn't it? Just give me free stuff, free stuff, free stuff. I don't want to have to work for anything. Jesus said, you're just wanting me to be your king. Look at verse 27. It says, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do, very key word, that we may work the works of God? Those two verbs, do, work. Jesus answered, this is the work of God. You want to work? Okay, you believe in him who he sent. You see, if they had gotten it, if they really believed that Jesus was who he said he was, the great I am, the Messiah of the Old Testament, understood what that meant, instead of coming to him and saying, give us something else, what they would have done, according to Scripture, is fallen down and worshipped him. Worshipped him as God. So you see there are two motivations, and I love this verse 27 through 29, you see the two works. This is so beautiful because so many people 
even in church, still struggle with this today. Man's view is physical. Again, physical versus spiritual. Verse 27, Jesus says, don't labor for the food which perishes. Verse 28, what shall we do? Ray Stedman, great theologian, talking about this passage, said this. No other passage of scripture more clearly reveals the confusion in the average person's mind about Jesus. Remember now, he's talking to Jews. And their leaders are all self-righteous. That the only way you could be right in the eyes of God is you have to do this and not do this. You've got to do it this way. You've got to do it our way. You've got to fit into our mold. You've got to keep the law the, the way we interpret it, the Torah and all that we have added to it. Then you can be righteous. That's all they understood. That's all they knew. That's all they'd ever seen by their, from their spiritual leaders. Remember the rich young ruler that encountered Jesus. And the Bible says a certain ruler asked Jesus saying, Good teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. Physical. Physical. Look at it again. Verse 28. They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? We've talked about this many times. Even people that are in churches where they're hearing the word of God and they're hearing it taught properly. So many times based on a human mindset or maybe how they grew up, what they learned themselves. If you ask people, are you going to, if you died today, are you going to heaven? The vast majority, I would say as many as 90% would say to you, I hope so. Why? Because in their mind, I think I'm doing okay. What does the Bible say? It doesn't matter what you think, and it really doesn't matter how many good things you do. You're not going to heaven because you're good. You're going to heaven because Jesus died for you. And he did the work. Notice Jesus' response. Their question is, what can we do? How can we work? Look at Jesus. I love this verse. What's Jesus say? You want to do work? Verse 29, this is the work you do. You believe in him that God sent. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for that which lasts eternally. Believe in the one he sent. And we're going to see in the rest of this sermon and throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, repeatedly, remember this is the first of the great I am statements, repeatedly you will hear Jesus say, I am the sent one. I am sent by the Father. I am sent. I am sent. I am sent from above. So what is he telling them here? You want to work? Here's work. Faith and the one God sent. The book of James, Chris Ellison's favorite verse, James 1.22, says what? Faith without works is dead. And the point is, it's not the works that save you, it's the faith that saves you, and those works are good works that result from being born again. Obedience. What Jesus is saying here, stop spending all your time trying to be good enough that God will say, okay, you're in, and put your faith in the one God has sent. And in the rest of the sermon, you know what he's going to say to them? By the way, I'm that person. 
Let me just read you a couple of quotes. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The book of Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money on that which is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God speaking, and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. God's plea. Jesus' point. Focus on the eternal bread. I will satisfy you. I will give you something nobody else can give you. At the end, near the end of World War II, as the Allied armies were, were cleaning up, obviously it was clear they were going to win the war, and they were gathering up a number, a large number of orphans that they had to take care of, and they were very hungry. And they put them in camps where they could take care of them and feed them well. Despite the, the good care that they got from the Allies, the, the kids, the, these children had a hard time sleeping. They slept very poorly. They were nervous and they were afraid. So the solution that their psychologists came up with was this. Every child was given a piece of bread to hold when he got ready to go to bed at night. They gave him the piece of bread just to hold, not to, be, not to eat, just to hold on to it. And the result was all the kids slept well because they had a guarantee that when they woke up tomorrow, they'd have what? They'd have bread. That's why when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, give us our daily bread. Does God meet our needs physically? Yes. But more importantly, he meets our needs spiritually. That we can wake up every day knowing that God's going to meet my needs today. Because God's not a liar. He's a good father. He says if earthly fathers know how to give gifts, how much better does your heavenly father know to give good? He only gives good and perfect gifts. I'm going to take care of you. And Jesus was saying to them, we're going to see. Look at verse 27. Don't labor for that food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Endures, endures. The Son of Man will give this to you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Talk about that in a moment. Jesus said, the Son of Man, which by the way is a messianic title from the book of Daniel, the Son of Man will give you this food, eternal food. Note the irony here. Labor for the food, according to the Jews, and it perishes. What kind of food does Jesus give you? Eternal food, which endures, and he gives it to you. You don't labor for it. Now verse 29 again. This is the work of God. You believe in him who he sent. It's his gift and it becomes our passion. Ephesians calls it walking worthy. After we're born again, it becomes our passion to labor for God. 
And the word labor that's used here, it means be deadly serious about it. That it's your number one priority. Because the eternal bread, that which endures to everlasting life, is the most important thing in our lives as Christians. To share it with other people. That we can meet physical needs, and we do. For example, the help group, what we did, we do every third Saturday of the month, we meet physical needs. But more importantly, all of us as believers and as a church, we have opportunities all the time to meet spiritual needs. To love on people. To share the gospel with them. Let them know that God wants, has something so much more for them than where they are right now. Jesus gives eternal food. Now notice, we're going to look at this. This is so important. Verse 27. Verse 27, one more time. The end of it. Jesus can give you eternal bread that lasts forever eternal. Why? Look at the end of verse 27. Because God the Father has set his seal on Jesus. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. I can say these dramatic, unbelievable, even hyperbolic things because God the Father, remember these are Jews, so God the Father was a big deal to them because God the Father has put his seal on me. I am the Messiah. And therefore, when I tell you I can do this, guess what? I can do this. It's not just talk. It's not just trying to to fire the crowd up. I'm saying, I with absolute authority, I'm speaking absolute truth to you. I can do this because I am. Moses knew me. Abraham knew me. David knew me. Joseph knew me. Adam and Eve knew me. I walked in the garden with them. I am. So when I say to you, I can give you bread that lasts forever. You could believe it. That's your work because I am. And they've proved to them, God has put his seal on me. Now, what does that mean? It's a beautiful picture. The first meaning of it is in the original language, it means God has put his authentication beyond a doubt on me. I have the, I have the authority of God the Father. I have the authentication of God the Father in the culture that they lived in when you put a seal on something, it was a guarantee of what was on the inside. It had the seal that, that whoever put the seal on it guaranteed that what was in there was of him with the wax and the whole idea. It also, to authenticate a document, they would put a seal on it, the mark with the ring and the seal of whoever was authenticating that document. In Ephesians, it, it talks about that the Holy Spirit has been a seal. We'll talk more about this in just a moment, but it's the guarantee of the fulfillment of a contract. How many of you have ever bought a house? When you buy a house, or other things even, you put down earnest money. What does earnest money mean? I plan to come back and do what? Finish the contract. Fulfill the contract. That's literally the word that's used in in Ephesians to talk about the Holy Spirit being the seal of our salvation. It's that it's the down payment. That's the word. It's the down payment of what you're going to get later on. It's called heaven eternal life. It's the down payment of an amazing contract where God seals it by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what Jesus is saying to them, I have the authentication of the Father. I have the seal of the Father. The rabbis taught that the seal of God meant this is true. 
what Je- remember, the crowd is Jewish and the rabbis are there. Jesus is saying, I have the authentication of God. I speak the truth. They believed that a scroll fell from heaven. The rabbis saw that a scroll fell from heaven. It had one word on it. E-M-E-T-H in Hebrew, and it means truth. It's spelled with three Hebrew letters. The first letter of the alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet, and the middle letter of the alphabet. In other words, as it says in Revelation, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Greek alphabet, I'm A to Z. Same thing here. I am the first, the middle, the last of Hebrew. I am all in all. I am God. All in all. So verse 27, Jesus is sealed as God. Ephesians 1 says this about the church. In Jesus, or in him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There it is. God seals you, gives you a promise. And it's the beauty about the promise of God. What do you know about the promise of God? That you know, he, he does not go on his, back on his promises, and you don't have to worry about him not being able to fulfill. He's God. He's omnipotent. He will do what he says he will do. Jesus alone is worthy of this. I want you to flip over for just a moment. It's very important we get this principle. I want you to flip over to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation, chapter 5. We'll come right back here. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand, Revelation 5, 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy, key phrase, to open the scroll and loose its seals. No one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, another key word, to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, this lamb, he came, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down, worship, before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song, saying, you are worthy, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb 
who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as that are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down there it is again and worshiped him who lives forever and ever now you can go back to John that's what's coming in the future Jesus came as the lamb and you remember the elders said worthy they said worthy as the lamb the first thing it said is the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David Jewish terms is worthy and the reason he's worthy is he's the lamb that was slain to save not just the Jews but every tribe, tongue, and nation on the planet, all the Gentiles as well. He's worthy. He can open the seal. So now back to John. Why does this matter? Verse 28. So he said, they said, what shall we do that we can work the works of God? Jesus said, I have the authentication of the Father. I speak truth. And they said, what do we need to do? And that's why 29 is so powerful. Jesus said, this is what you do. You believe in the one God the Father sent the one, this oxymoron. The work is to have faith. You're not saved by works, you're saved by faith in the one that God sent because he alone can save you. He alone. The Bible says the wages, in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way. They said they were seeking Jesus, and they were, but not with the right motivation. And Jesus said, you turn to me, put your faith in the one that God sent, and I'll not only meet your physical needs, I'll give you eternal bread. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, as we get ready to close out our time together today, we want to just thank you for the incredible gift of Jesus Christ. That he came, he died, he was buried. And he rose again. He did the work so that we can be saved. We can have eternal bread. We can't get it. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. It's a gift. We're humbled, Father, that you've given that to us. And even as we get ready to close out our time today around the Lord's table and sharing the Lord's Supper together, that we would genuinely be moved by the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, spilled and broken for our forgiveness. And that we would daily revel in the bread that you give us, both physical and spiritual, and daily look and pray for opportunities to share that eternal bread with others. We commit the rest of our time together, Lord, that you would be glorified in each individual life that's watching Lord, that's here. In Jesus' name, amen.
you have your elements. Here's what I would like to do. The worship team's going to lead us in song in a moment. You take your elements. If you want to stand, you stand. If you want to sit, you sit. You spend that time during the worship song together, just you and the Lord praying, talking. And at the end of the song, I'll come up and we'll share the Lord's Supper together.